the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. Only in the uniform of Nafiana or the Irish Volunteers would she be the soldier. She did understand that dressed as a woman you had a different role to play. Margaret Skinner, the rebel, feminist, activist and schoolteacher who led a long and radical life. Also... The mechanism was fear. Fear was sort of the glue that kept the dictatorship together. And it was not so much real fear as also perceived fear. We'll visit Berlin and hear about the Stasi, the secret police in East Germany, and how the German people today reckon with a history of surveillance and suppression. Plus... By no means forgotten by their families and comrades, but were certainly forgotten by the government of the time and successive governments. They just became statistics of a war that... Everyone wanted to forget. The Forgotten Fallen, the new book that profiles the National Army soldiers who died during the Irish Civil War and makes the case that they've been overlooked for too long. But to begin this evening, Margaret Skinner enters and exits the history books as the woman who was wounded commanding a military action in the 1916 Rising. A new book on the rebel, feminist and activist illuminates Skinner's long and radical life. We'll begin with the words of her friend Nora Connolly O'Brien, though, from the RTE Radio archives. Loving kindness was the way you could describe Margaret Skinner, although she was such a terrific fighter for freedom and against injustice of all kinds and to help people on in the world and... But loving kindness, if you wanted to say, was the abiding spirit in Margaret. Nora Connolly O'Brien on Margaret Skinner. I'm joined now by Dr Mary McAuliffe, Assistant Professor in Gender Studies at University College Dublin, who's written the first biography of Margaret Skinner. Mary, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. What first brought Margaret to your attention? Uh, I was the historical consultant on the Royal College of Surgeons centenary exhibition in 2016. Uh, And of course, Margaret was stationed there during the 1916 Rising. And I also had the privilege of meeting her grandniece, who lives in Australia, who arrived with a wonderful hoard of photographs taken throughout Margaret's life and various other bits of archival material which we used in the exhibition. So from then on, I was intrigued by Margaret Skinner. I had known her name, but not very much about her history. And of course, then when the digitisation of the military uh, pension applications happened, Margaret was the the, the sniper girl who didn't get her pension. So she kind of entered my consciousness then as well. And so from then on, I have been looking at who Margaret Skinner was. Now, she actually wrote an autobiography, but it's not very extensive. It only covers her life up to 1916, Doing My Bit for Ireland. Yes, she did. She And it, that is a very interesting book. It's one of the earliest women's eyewitness accounts of the 1916 Rising, obviously written as a propaganda piece uh, while she was on the Irish Republican Women's Tour in America and published there in 1917. But it also shows Margaret's route to politicisation, I suppose, and gives her an account of her early years in Coatbridge, where she was born, and Glasgow, where she grew up and where she came to, I suppose, a political awakening, both as a suffragette, a militant suffragette, and as a militant Irish nationalist. Now, her 
best known role, I suppose, is her role in The Rising. So tell us a little bit about her background. As you say, she was uh, she's associated with Glasgow, a bit like James Connolly, family originally from uh, Monaghan. But tell us what brought her to the, the 1916 Rising in the first place, that uh, first part of her active career, as it were. Well, I think she was very much involved in the Gaelic League initially and like many of the rebels of 1916, she comes through cultural nationalism through to uh, militant nationalism. But she's also very much engaged with feminist activism and is, from her very early years, a, a left-leaning socialist, very much in, concerned with the rights of workers. So those three great movements that Countess Markovitch talked about, you know, the cause of labour, Irish freedom and women's rights were very much part of her from the time she was in her late teens and when she was living in Glasgow. Coming to Dublin, she had been involved in Cumannamon in Glasgow, the Anne Devlin branch there. She'd been working with the Irish volunteers to raid the shipyards in Glasgow to get arms and ammunition and bomb-making equipment. And in December 1915, she takes a boat to Dublin from Glasgow with materials on her, bomb-making materials on her, wrapped around her body. Uh, And she talks in Doing My Bit about how scared she was that she'd actually blow up if the crossing was very rough. And there she meets James Connolly, she uh, stays with Countess Markovitch, she meets Thomas McDonough, who gives her uh, with a revolver, which she takes into the Rising with her, and obviously becomes very trusted by the leadership because she does know to come back to Dublin just before, and, and of course as a teacher, she got her Easter holidays then, to come back just before the Rising began, the week before Easter week. Now she was in Stephen's Green with Michael Mallon, during the rising, tell us about her experience in, uh, in in Stevens Green in Easter Week. Well, she began first as a dispatch carrier, and in doing my bit, there's a very evocative paragraph about how she was sent off from Liberty Hall when they had all gathered there on Easter Monday to go up to the Green to see if anything was moving around there, if any, you know, DMP or British soldiers, and if there weren't, she was told to wait until the garrison arrived. And she talks about seeing the men in green uniforms marching along through the trees and waiting for them to arrive. And she ends that paragraph with, the revolution has begun. She spends the week then in the garrison there. Obviously, they retreat to the Royal College of Surgeons from Stevens Green early on Tuesday because they couldn't um, protect themselves in the green. She is a dispatch carrier for the first couple of days. She goes from the Royal College of Surgeons to the GPO several times. And indeed, she says she was there at the GPO when Pierce reads the proclamation. And that is a very important moment for her because she comes back to that proclamation again and again, not just in doing my bit for Ireland, but throughout her life. Uh, She says it said that women were on an equality with men. And that is the touchstone, I suppose, of her life from then on. Interestingly, she does make a distinction between her activities as a dispatch carrier, which she performed in her grey dress, cycling her bicycle, a young woman cycling through Dublin, and her activities as a sniper. Uh, She changed into a mole-skilled uniform that Countess Markovitch had made for her. And she's very conscious that she could only shoot a rifle, which she was quite expert with, when she was in the uniform of the Irish Citizen Army. So she makes that distinction herself. And and the gender performance of masculinity and femininity is very interesting in doing my bit for Ireland. 
Of course, she's wounded. She leads an attack on a sniper nest and, and she uses the proclamation to persuade Malin to allow her to do that. Again, saying we were on an equality with the men. And she goes out with William Partridge of the Irish Citizen Army and a young man, Freddie Ryan, who was only 17, also of the ICA. And they try, they, they head towards the university church from the Royal College of Surgeons, but they're detected and fired on. Young Freddie Ryan is killed and Margaret is seriously wounded three times and has to be taken back to the College of Surgeons where she's operated on by the women there. And, it, and it's testimony, I think, to the excellent training the first aid women had from Dr Kathleen Lynn that they save her life. They actually thought she would die. It was huge blood loss. Uh, Frank Robbins describes having to move her and all the blood that she had lost and he thought she was dead. But actually she survives and lives until 1971 with those wounds. Because she was wounded, she isn't arrested after the rising. So she last sees her companions being taken off to Richmond Barracks and then on to Kilmainham Jail and, and mentions that's the last time she sees Michael Mallon because of course he's executed. She herself goes to St Vincent's Hospital where she will spend a few months recovering there. Let's backtrack a little bit because we're going to hear the voice now of Margaret Skinner herself from the RTE Radio Archives describing how exactly she was shot during the Rising. It took only a few minutes to reach the building at the foot of Harcourt Street. William Partridge smashed the glass door in front of the shop with his rifle butt and a flash followed. I went past him into the doorway of the shop and half turned to tell the others to come on and behind me came the sound of a volley and I fell. The flash from Partridge's gun had revealed us to the enemy who fired from a Sinn Féin bank opposite. Partridge lifted and carried me into the street and there on the sidewalk lay a figure in the pool of blood. It was Fred Ryan, a boy of 17. He was dead. I was taken back to the College of Surgeons. When my coat was cut off, I was found to have three bullet wounds, one a quarter of an inch from my spine. If I had not turned to call the others, I would have got all three into my back. Margaret Skinner there describing how she was injured by gunfire during the Easter Rising and by the sound of it narrowly escaping death or a permanent disabling injury. So what did she do then, Mary, after she recovered from her wounds? Well, she got back to Scotland and she was back in Glasgow, got some work. She was she's a mathematics teacher and she got some work, but she couldn't settle and being in touch with both Nora Connolly and Hannah Shee Skeffington, she decided to go to New York. Uh, her brother was actually there, Thomas Skinner, uh, very much involved in Clonmacgill over there. So she herself wasn't the only member of her family who was engaged with Irish nationalism. So she joins Nora Connolly and Hannah Shee Skeffington in New York, and for the next eighteen months joins them and other Irish Republican women going from city to city in America, giving talks to the Irish American crowd, sellout talks. She's at one stage in Washington. She's in Chicago, Boston, New Orleans, New York. Their base is in New York and they don't particularly like it, particularly in summertime. They find it very, very hot. And she's also very upset because her father dies while she's in New York. And obviously she's not there for that. Part of the propaganda was writing her memoir and, uh, you know, bringing that Irish-American crowd around to supporting the cause of Irish freedom and fundraising for reorganising and rearming the Irish volunteers and reorganising Cumann Amon. So she, that, that's very important work herself and her best friend, Nora Connolly, are doing there. 
And then one other thing that is very important to her, it's most likely in New York that she meets Nora O'Keefe. Uh, O'Keefe was an Irish immigrant, the daughter of a farming family from Tipperary, a family with a long tradition in Fenian politics and in nationalist politics. And Nora and Margaret will be life partners and will spend the rest of their lives living together in Dublin from 1919 when they're both back, uh, living in Fairview first and then in Clontarf. So from 1919, after her period in America, she, as you say, returns to Ireland via Liverpool. What does she do during the War of Independence years? Interestingly, um, she's not, uh, uh, she doesn't wear her uniform, her moleskin uniform or anything like that during the War of Independence. And her behaviour is more in common with what most common man women did at the time during the War of Independence. She runs a safe house. She's a very senior member of the Fairview Coming Amon and eventually becomes director of training of the entire organisation. She's uh, invited onto the Central Committee. She is transporting arms and ammunition. She's constantly fundraising and running all sorts of fundraising events. Uh, She's dispatch carrying, as is Nora O'Keefe. And and O'Keefe spends a large portion of the War of Independence in the Munster area, dispatch carrying all around Tipperary, Waterford and areas like that. So it is a house that is busy at the work of women during the War of Independence. And her relationship with Nora O'Keefe was it was a romantic relationship. It was. Um, Margaret apparently did keep a diary all of her life. And unfortunately, her executor burned the diaries on her death because he felt that he didn't want her private life to make it into the history books, which is a, a hint of maybe a, a discomfort with that private life. However, her grandniece has shared the images of their life together and they leave in no doubt that they were a couple. Nor do sources in the Sheehy Skeffington archive. Margaret and Nora O'Keefe were great friends with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and with Nora Connolly and there are letters from all four women in the Sheehy Skeffington archive and it's very obvious that they are regarded as a household, a couple and that's the way they're spoken about by their friends and that's the way they're treated. They're invited to all ven- events together, anything to do with coming Amon or the funerals of old uh, coming Amon comrades. You see them listed in the who attended section of the reports and you see them operating together all this time. And of course, Nora O'Keefe had her own Republican pedigree, didn't she, in Tipperary? She absolutely did. Um, her sisters were in Coming Amon down there. Her brothers were in the Irish Volunteers. They're very much involved with the big four, you know, uh, Sean Tracy, Dan Breen and the others. In fact, I, Nora has a distant kinship with Sean Tracy and is the one that identifies him when he's uh, shot in Dublin. She goes to St. Brickens Hospital and takes a lock of his hair and a ring off his finger and identifies him as Sean Tracy and helps with organising, getting his body transported back to Tipperary. Uh, her brothers are also involved in the Civil War and fight with Cahal Brua in Hammond's Hotel and they're imprisoned, as are Margaret and Nora, of course. What side then does Margaret take in the Civil War? Well, uh, obviously the anti-treaty side and vehemently so. In the Cumann meeting to decide on their stance on the treaty, um, she says that anyone who would take an oath of an allegiance to the crown could no longer be regarded as an Irishman. 
And while she's very sad to see uh, comrades like Jenny Wise Power leave Cumann she feels that the treaty betrayed everything that they had fought for. And she becomes very much involved and she's very senior in that. Once the fighting breaks out in the four courts, she sets up the Cumann uh, facilities nearby in Tara Hall. She commandeers an ambulance and meets with some Cumann women from Scotland, from Glasgow, whom she knew who were bringing over arms and loads up the ambulance with the arms and takes them off to Cahal Brua at the Hammond Hotel. And she continues to be that until the Battle of Dublin is over. Then she becomes more involved in the administrative elements of the civil war on the anti-treaty side. She actually becomes the quartermaster general of the anti-treaty IRA and disperses funds all around the country. She's very important in that. And Nora O'Keefe is also very important, much more as a propagandist for the anti-treaty side and runs a short-lived anti-treaty newspaper in Tipperary. Both, of course, are arrested. Margaret, because uh, she's arrested in possession of a rifle or a revolver the day after Christmas, 1922, and Nora is arrested in Tipperary er, about a month earlier. Uh, so both of them spend most of 1923, Nora in Kilmainham Jail, being transferred from Cork, and Margaret in Mountjoy Jail initially, and then, of course, along with the rest, is transferred to the North Dublin Union. She goes on hunger strike three times during this period as well. There's still about 50 years of her life left ahead of her at that point. What becomes of her after the Civil War ends? Well, this was it. This is the importance of doing biographical research on these women, because we do get to know a lot of what many of them did during the revolutionary period. But so many of them live for another five or six decades. And Margaret is as active in this period. In fact, she doesn't really stop until a year or two before her death when she gets ill. She's very much involved with Cumann Amman. She remains in Cumann Amman through the 1920s and 1930s and is on the executive. And indeed, when Countess Markovic steps down, she does contest the election for the leadership of Cumann Amman, but obviously doesn't get that. She goes back to teaching and by 1928 she has a position in the Sisters of Charity uh, National School in King's Inn and she joins the INTO immediately. She's very conscious that anyone, particularly any woman who has a job, should be in a trade union and she will spend the rest of her career in the INTO, climbing the ranks, eventually becoming its president in 1956. And I think the two things that were most important to her was pay parity for women and unmarried male teachers in the profession. And when the marriage bar was introduced to get that marriage bar overturned, which eventually does happen the year after she was president of the INTO. She is very much involved in the teachers strike in 1946. She's on the Roe Commission, which looks at standards and practices and pay and conditions. She is invited on to several committees. She's very much involved with the Dublin branch of the INTO, who would be the most radical branch, I suppose, of the INTO, and continues doing that. She represents them in several international conferences. She's also very much involved politically, uh, very much a left-leaning socialist bent to our political ideologies. And she joins Clonmel Publica and becomes one of its senior members once it's set up in 1946 and indeed runs for election. Although she does say because she put her name in Irish on the ballot, people probably didn't recognise there was her and she never did get elected. 
Let's uh, go back to her career as a teacher, because by all accounts, she was as dedicated to her teaching as she was to the Republican movement. And Maura Comerford was her friend and her comrade for many years. And here she recalls what Margaret was like as a teacher. She taught in King's End School. She was such a firm trades unionist. She wouldn't tolerate any teachers in the school who didn't belong to the, uh, the teachers' organisation. Margaret was a most dedicated teacher and she translated the ideas of Pierce for her own pupils. She made them love Irish history and the language and this music and the songs of Ireland. She was very strict, but she had great control over the girls and had their affection uh, to an extraordinary degree. She was a most unusual teacher. A strict teacher, a a fair teacher however but uh, someone who won the affection of her students according to uh, Maura Comerford Um, Mary there's some amazing photographs in the book were they of huge assistance in researching you know aspects of her life that wouldn't necessarily have been in the public domain Absolutely, particularly after I found out that uh, much of her written archive had been destroyed or, or was remained inaccessible if it's still there And so I'm very grateful to her descendants and to the descendants of Nora O'Keefe, who shared with me so much, particularly the visual material. And uh, for women particularly who mightn't leave archives, written archives, or if they did, their families mightn't have recognised the importance. Having those photographs was of great help to seeing, I, I suppose, the visual impact of a life. And there are only some of the many, many tens of photographs that her grandniece in Australia have, and, and I hope to do some work on them with her grandniece into the future. They're an amazing chronicle of both a public and a private life. So it was a real privilege to have access to those photographs. One of the most striking photographs, actually, is of her dressed as a boy. Tell us about that photograph, because uh, it has an interesting (laughs) pedigree or provenance of its own. Yes, that was taken in 1915, possibly in Wicklow. When she comes over in 1915, she goes on a lot of route marches with Nafiana, dressed as one of them. And interestingly, it appears in Doing My Bit for Ireland, but it is her alone, obviously a doctored version of what the original photograph was. In the original photograph, she's dressed in her Fianna gear with her cigarette hanging from her mouth with two young women, one on either side, linking her arms. And I suppose knowing what we know of Margaret's subsequent private life that she was in a same-sex relationship with Nora O'Keefe, it's interesting to see that sort of queer image, I suppose we would call it now, of Margaret performing a certain type of female masculinity or female militarism. And it's interesting that she does write about that in Doing My Bit for Ireland only in the uniform of Nafiana or the Irish volunteers would she be the soldier. She did understand that dressed as a woman you had a different role to play. Well she's a fascinating woman, she had a fascinating life, a great story and did get the pension in the end, didn't get it in 1924. She did. She did. <laughs> when Dev came to power uh, she, yes. uh, she, she she did get, get the pension that, uh, that she deserves. The book is simply called Margaret Skinner published by UCD Press. The author is Dr Mary McAuliffe. Mary, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. After the break, we'll be visiting Berlin and hearing about the history of the Stasi, the secret police in East Germany, and how German people today still reckon with a history of surveillance and suppression. Stay with us. 
Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. 31 years on from the fall of the Berlin Wall, Germany is still reckoning with its divided past. East Germany, which existed from 1949 to 1990 as part of the communist bloc, was very much a police state. An atmosphere of fear, distrust and paranoia was ever-present throughout the decades of the state's existence. The infamous East German secret police, known as the Stasi, used intimidation and terror to enforce its iron grip on society. It was also an intrusive surveillance organisation which persuaded ordinary people to spy on and inform on their neighbours. We're going to hear more now about the history of the Stasi and their role in the communist state of East Germany. Mark McMenamin sent us this report from Berlin. It was very grey, crumbling. The only colour you saw was a communist red and nothing was spontaneous. Everything was controlled. That's the acclaimed German photojournalist Thomas Hopker describing his first visit to East Germany in 1959. At that time, hundreds of thousands were fleeing the state every year. People had to go join a parade. There was no joy. It was like a, something you had to do. The country was really bleeding to death. Not only a body drain, but it was also a brain drain. Thomas's visit to Berlin coincided with the erection of the Berlin Wall, a structure that would be enforced on the eastern side by a fearsome secret police. They secretly decided to build a wall which would be tightly controlled and nobody would be able to cross anymore. So that happened in 1961. The communist barrier between East and West Berlin grows higher and stronger, the more determined grows the will of those in the East to escape. Along the border, East Berliners are forced to evacuate their homes as the communist police move to prevent their escape. In the new East German state, known as the German Democratic Republic, or the GDR, communist rule was enforced at all costs. The reason was that any East German who had some kind of an important job was not supposed to have what they were calling West contact. So they were closely watched by the state police and any West contact would be noted and uh, frowned upon. East Berlin and the GDR became completely isolated from the West. Camera crews are harassed by reflecting mirrors in the hands of East German police and water hoses are played on equipment. Nevertheless, our reporters are able to come up with some remarkable pictures, despite these hazards. Smoke and tear gas bombs sometimes boomerang on the East German troops. Eventually, the GDR began a policy of widespread state surveillance on East German citizens, which was to be carried out by the Ministry for State Security, commonly known as the Stasi. The mechanism was fear. Fear was sort of the glue that kept the dictatorship together. And it was not so much real fear as also perceived fear. But who exactly were the Stasi? And what was their true function in the GDR? It's a question I put to Dagmar Hofstadt of the German Federal Commission for the Stasi Records. 
The Stasi was the Ministry of State Security of East Germany. It was a secret police because its main focus was to rein in its own citizens in order to follow the line of the Communist Party. In East Germany, the Communist Party was called SED, Socialist Unity Party of Germany. It was installed by the Soviets, like many of the other Communist parties after World War II. In many ways, the Stasi saw itself as the strong arm of the ruling German Communist Party. In the Soviet or communist ideology of the 40s, dating back to the revolution of 1917, the secret police was there to maintain the power of the party and to ensure the success of the revolution, the communist revolution, the world revolution. So the secret police was always a part of this whole idea of establishing communist rule in a society. The Stasi were relentless in their surveillance and suppression of East German people, to the point of human rights abuses. The Stasi understood itself as the shield and sword of the party. So whatever they would do, they would do in order and on the orders of the party to maintain the power of the party. In truth, there was no limit to what the GDR was prepared to do. They persecuted people who would speak their mind, who would be interested in forming their own party apart from the Communist Party, and, and most particularly and peculiar to East Germany, the fact that they secured or helped secure the border. East Germany was a country that decided to shoot its own citizens if they chose to leave the country in the western direction. Behavior was sort of building on the thought that something might happen that you cannot control and you'd rather not challenge the system. And so you basically just flew under the radar and, and you accepted that you couldn't travel where you wanted. You accepted that you couldn't really speak your mind in public. You would just tell it to your friends and you hoped that these friends were trustworthy friends. It's a sentiment echoed by Thomas Hopker. You know the word untertan, the, the underling, a person who is obedient to his masters, to his state. And they were really bringing up uh, a new generation of untertanen. It was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you would know that if you demanded freedom of speech or your own way of life and it would not coincide with what the party wanted, that eventually the Stasi would come. Um, if you wouldn't follow the party rule, you would not be able to study or build a career. So you kind of fell in line into what was demanded, knowing that if you did something different, the Stasi would come. Today, Dagmar presides over the Stasi Records Project which allows full public access to Stasi records. This pioneering form of truth and transitional justice perhaps gives us a glimpse as to a template for dealing with our own troubled past here in Ireland. So the documents, the documents the, that we ha as an archive now administer and make available document tens of thousands of human rights violations, mostly for the victims of the Stasi to access the data that the Stasi had gathered on them to basically reconcile and understand the manipulations that the state has done to their lives and, and recoup and, and repossess, so to speak, um, the stolen life data and the stolen life from the Stasi. This project has played a big role in understanding the mechanisms of the dictatorship, and the responsibilities of individual people. The names of ministry staff members and even unofficial collaborators can still be made public. 
it somehow frees everybody involved. It frees the perpetrator, if you want to call him that, you know, because it's out in the open. His responsibility is clearly named. And it frees the victim to just see it and decide in their own way how to deal with that. But the process of understanding, of, of gathering facts, of making public what was in the dark, is only a first step. And then healing, an even bigger word, reconciliation, is a huge task. Mark McMenamin was reporting there from Berlin on the history of the Stasi, the East German secret police, and how their surveillance records are being used today to reckon with the past. After the break, The Forgotten Fallen. We'll hear from the author of the new book on National Army soldiers who died during the Irish Civil War. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. The Irish Civil War lasted for 11 months when compared to other civil wars throughout history, not a very long period of time. In that relatively short period, over 780 National Army soldiers on the pro-treaty side died. The Forgotten Fallen is a new book by historian James Langton, which tells the story of who those men were. And James joins me now. You're very welcome indeed to the programme. Tell us first of all about that, the title, The Forgotten Fallen. In what sense do you think these men have been forgotten? Well, for several reasons, really. Unfortunately, I always felt that the deaths of the soldiers in the book have been mainly forgotten, not by their families, of course, but by the government that they died trying to defend. As historian Ann Dolan rightly put it, nothing robbed the Free State soldier more of his dignity than the government's treatment of his memory. And I also found when I'd visit cemeteries throughout the country, I'd be very saddened when I'd find their graves unmarked and no headstone. Of course, poverty played a huge part in that, uh, where families wouldn't be able to afford a headstone, you know. I also found that with the anti-treaty soldiers as well, you know. It wasn't like the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and uh, World War One, where everybody got a headstone, all the headstones were the same, and they were all buried where they died. Yeah, well, you'll probably notice in the book, uh, historian Lars Fallon uh, wrote the foreword, and he explained it perfectly when he compared them to those soldiers who died in, first, in the First World War. You know, Irishmen who fought for another cause and in another uniform, another army. You know, rarely like would you go into a city, town or village in Ireland where there wouldn't be some form of memorial to remember these men by. And quite rightly so. But in comparison, there's very few to the national soldiers who died during the Civil War conflict. Like I said, they were not by no means forgotten by their families and comrades, but were certainly forgotten by the government of the time and successive governments. And why do you think the government didn't step in? Because the, I mean, during the War of Independence, the IRA prided itself on attempting at least to behave like an army and in many instances mimicked the, the procedures of the British army, of their, of their opponents. Why did the Free State government not decide to mimic the procedure adopted by the British government in World War I and, and pay for gravestones? They just became statistics of a war that everyone wanted to forget, in particular the government. Michael Collins' grave wasn't marked until, I think it was 1939. When you look at the graves in Glasnevin Cemetery, where the army plot actually is, I mean, that wasn't, their names weren't inscribed on that until, I think it was 1967. They remained unmarked, which is an absolute disgrace. 
when we compared it with the Wool Wool Memorial, that is Ireland Bridge. The memorial, by the way, that the government gave £50,000 at the time towards its development and a further 25000 for the upkeep of their grades throughout the country without a second thought. And that, that was in 1940. And it was proposed in the 1930s that, that you know, that's, that's soon after the First World War, if you like, compared to 1967. Now let's drill down into those statistics. Um, when you look at all the men who died, 788 by your account, the figures are interesting. 488 were killed in action, died of wounds, were assassinated or in some cases were executed. Yeah. That figure, though, is still quite a bit short of the 788 names in the book. What happened to the other 300? Well, 175 of them died in accidental shootings and mishandling of other weaponry. Uh, 32 died in other accidental circumstances, you know, like falls, road accidents, things like that, you know. Um, four of them uh, actually drowned. And uh, 69 of them died of natural causes in the course of that conflict. And that was quite hard to nail down because you're wondering, well, if they died of natural causes, was it because of what happened during the Civil War? Like a lot of them, some of them had TB and different things like that. So you get things like that from being out in the weather and out on manoeuvres and in all weathers, you know what I mean? So they are, I included them in it, but only the 69 who died during the course of the conflict. Also, I just want to mention there was uh, seven uh, former national soldiers executed by the Free State Government who deserted to the anti-treaty side. And uh, they're recorded both in this volume and volume two, which covers the anti-treaty side. On the cover of the book, there's an image of the headstone of Tom Kill. And uh, Tom Kill was one of the National Army soldiers killed during the Civil War. Tell us yeah. a little bit about the harrowing story of his death. Well, he was blown to pieces, basically, in a trap mine explosion down in Cork, along with six other troops, and the sad thing about it was he actually survived the blast long enough to ask for a priest. And uh, he had horrific injuries and died an awful death, you know. The headstone itself was paid for by his uh, friends and comrades on uh, both sides of the Civil War. Because he was one of Michael Collins' elite squad. And it was unveiled by Liam Tobin. And when it was unveiled, people from both sides of the conflict attended the unveiling ceremony. Tom Kyo's uh, War of Independence history is really interesting. And he's from Wicklow, club, but he took part in every major operation, if you like, in the Dublin Active Service Unit. The headstone itself is, as you can see, it's a dying Tom Kyo at the base of the cross, supposed to be lying on the side of the road. And there's also a bronze plaque or an image of his face. And then around the actual monument itself is the different stages of Irish history, like you have the 1798 rebellion, an effigy, if you like, of that. And then you have the 1867, the Fenian Rising, and then the 1916 Rising. And, you know, it's a really fabulous monument. Talk to us a bit about the experience of the families of members of the National Army who have been killed, the the knock on the door, because apparently that's what it was, uh, uh, to be told that a son or a husband has been been killed. I mean, that must have been devastating. Uh, Yeah, well, you had wives, we say, with their children in their homes or parents, and all of a sudden... The place was in a state of chaos at the time, so there was communication was literally silch. And they wouldn't know anything about the deaths of their loved ones until a knock would come to the door and the coffin would be basically outside in a carriage, which must have been horrific. No telegrams to warn them? No, in many cases there wasn't, depending on the communication system at the time and how well it was up and running, you know. 
Now, obviously, Michael Collins is the most famous fatality on the pro-treaty side in the Civil War. But tell us about one of the less well-known fatalities, Commandant Matthew Fitzpatrick. He was killed in something that became known as the Clonus Affray. What was all that about? Yeah, well, now, he's not buried there. There are lots of soldiers, you know, buried there, including two of the captains that were killed at Notnagoshet in County Kerry, which led to the Ballyseedy Massacre in the end, you know, and a string of tit-for-tat killings. But the other guys, like General Matthew Fitzpatrick of the 5th Northern Division, he was actually one of the first soldiers killed because it was in February 1922, before the Civil War actually officially broke out. And what happened was there was three men going to be executed up in Derry Jail. Um, the story starts with Michael Collins basically wants them out. So they decided to, with the GAA, believe it or not, to uh, stage a cup final, which is unusual for February. And he sent the team up over the border with the intention of uh, breaking these men out. And one of them was a fellow called Dan Hogan, who was a brother of Michael Hogan, who was killed in Crow Park. But when they went up, they were captured by the Ulster Constabulary and jailed. So Michael Collins wanted, demanded their release and it just wasn't happening. Craig wanted him to apply for their bail and this and the other. And he wouldn't do that because to do that, he was being tricked into recognising the six-county state, which he didn't. So in response to that, the National Army actually sent a force of 200 men into Tyrone and Fermanagh and captured 45 prominent Orange men. And Ono Duffy, Sean Boylan, on the anti-treaty side, and Collins himself, they coordinated that operation. Of course, Craig and that wanted those released, because Collins was letting on that he didn't know anything about it, and he'd do his best to see that they'd be released. So up, up there at the time, there was A specials, B specials, and C specials in the Ulster Constabulary. There was with 32,000 to 42,000 of those. And... Three days later, they were on their way to Belfast, from Belfast to Enniskillen, and they stopped at that particular clonal station. Of course, that was south of the border. So there was an understanding that none of those would cross the border, either in uniform or armed. And it was totally disregarded, you know. When they pulled into the station, there was also Irish volunteers on the platform. And word uh, reached Fitzpatrick, who immediately headed to the station to to interview the B-Special's leader. He happened to be a sergeant. So when he made it to the carriage and to call him to surrender, he, he was just immediately shot. There was no questions asked. He was just immediately shot through the head. And when this happened, of course, IRA volunteers and national soldiers poured into the station from all directions and all hell broke loose. There was a gunner there, a national soldier called Joe McConnell, who later became a colonel in the Irish Army. He happened to have one of the submachine guns that Collins had smuggled into the country. And he opened up on the uh, Ulster policemen with tragic consequences. He killed five of them outright, including the sergeant who had killed Fitzpatrick, and maimed all of the rest of them, three of who would later die of their wounds. So this led to a huge uh, diplomatic incident and actually stopped Churchill from withdrawing the British troops from the south. So Collins pulled a master stroke of diplomacy and went to London and convinced Churchill and Lloyd George not to reinvade the country. And he would do his best to see that the hostages would be released so on the 21st of February that year, the Monaghan GEA prisoners were all released. And the following day, the Irishmen were all released also unharmed, you know. So it's, it's an amazing story. If you just imagine it, again, like the petty coincidence, it was where anti-treaty and pro-treaty joined forces against the, uh, the common enemy, you know. 
an extraordinary story. Now, now mm. one of the one of the dominant narratives when it comes to the Irish Civil War is executions carried out by the Free State government, uh, yeah. 77 of them, uh, apparently. I'm sure that's something you will cover in detail in the next volume of the series, which is going to be on the oh, anti-treaty yeah. IRA who died. But the anti-treaty IRA also executed extrajudicially a number of Free State soldiers. Who were they? Why were they executed? John P. Dugan, who wrote a, a brilliant book on the Irish Army a number of years ago, he maintained that there were 53 of them executed in, in all. But I could only find evidence of 11 actual executions, you know. And I can only assume then that the remaining 42 concerned the ruthless murders of unarmed soldiers who were shot in the streets, you know, like Private Fitzgerald on Granby Row in Dublin and others who were shot or murdered in their homes like the O'Connor brothers in uh, Kenmare in County Kerry. But to give you a, a, a good example of an execution, one that happened in Adamstown in County Wexford, there was two soldiers sort of acting the maggot, if you like, in McCabe's public house, or throwing their weight around, and word went back to the local barracks that this was going on, and Lieutenant uh, Thomas Jones, with a number of soldiers, went down to apprehend the two soldiers. And when they went there, they only found one of them, so they, they took him away. But then they later went back looking for the other guy, and the IRA were waiting on them there, an anti-treaty force was waiting on them there, and captured them and took them away and executed them in a field not too far away, you know. So that's an example of where anti-treaty forces carried out the executions and further proof of the drastic measures carried out by both sides as the conflict sank to terrible depths. And about the Adamstown incident, I was very moved to find a memorial there. In this particular case, the three men that were executed there were executed as a reprisal, if you like, for three anti-treaty men, namely Crean, Pearl and Hogan, who were killed in Wexford Jail. And on the site where the three soldiers were killed, a monument was put up commemorating all six men. And on the monument, there's two hands joined, brother against brother, you know, in friendship. And I just thought it a very moving monument to both sides who fought in the Civil War. And both sides attended that unveiling ceremony and... The two hands on it, I just you know, clasping hands and friendship. I just, I just thought it was a reconciling type of a monument, if you like. One of the tragic events during the Civil War was the killing of the O'Connor brothers in Kenmare by the the anti-treaty IRA. What happened there? Well, there was an IRA sweep to take the town, and the two O'Connor brothers had outstanding War of Independence records, and they were highly respected by both sides in the Civil War. And they didn't think that lives were in danger. Like, there was no sentries or anything like that put to guard their houses or where they lived. And uh, when they came to one of the brothers' houses, he came down the stairs to see what the fracas was at the door, and they just shot him dead. And then they went to his other brother's house, pulled him out of the bed by the hair, and held him down and basically shot him through the head. There was great revulsion over this. It left an awful bitter feeling in the area on both sides. One of the most harrowing events of the Civil War were the murders, the extrajudicial killings in Kerry in March 1923 by the National Army. Can you explain why the National Army did what they did to anti-treaty prisoners in their, in their custody? I mean, it appears that they went on a rampage. When I was doing the research here, I went into great depth, for instance, Ballyseedy. Well, the roots of that is based in what happened in Nakhnagashal where the soldiers were led to a fake arms dump 
and there was a guy there from the area who they were after. He was giving them great information. And he was killed outright in the explosion. But also, the reason that he joined the National Army was because the IRA called into his father's farm and basically robbed the farm. They were out in his fields and he needed to get the hay in. He couldn't and he asked them to leave and they wouldn't leave. And it just so happened that a, a platoon of National Army soldiers came on the scene and they thought then that he was after getting them. So it sort of escalated from there and then his father's house was robbed and all, you know, all their cattle were taken and his money was taken and they were basically ruined. So the son, Pat O'Connor, went off and joined the National Army and he was a great help to them, you see, in the area where information and all that was concerned. So he was here as number one target then that they needed to take him out. But in doing that, they lured him to this particular arms dump and there was a trap mine set. Two of the men who were killed in that were a guy called Captain Stapleton and Captain Dunn. And they were active service unit members from the War of Independence here in Dublin and served with Paddy O'Daly, who was over the forces in Kerry. One of them actually survived long enough to, again, ask for a priest. And their deaths, there were pieces of their bodies flung hundreds of yards from the scene into fields and ditches. But what happened was, when Ward reached Paddy O'Daly, that fury, he had to be actually held down because he was, he was going to go out and just shoot anti-treaty soldiers in their cells. Do you know what I mean? He was in such a rage. So he had to be held down. Or he, he decided to get revenge and it, it led to the Bally City Massacre. And that led then to a series of tit-for-tack killings as the war went on. So it was really brutal in Kerry. It was indeed. And uh, it's a fantastic book, James. It's a fantastic achievement, beautifully produced. But let's face it, it does make a pretty grim reading. But it also sheds light on one of the darkest chapters in our recent history. Thank you very much for talking to us uh, today about it. And we look forward to the second volume on the anti-treaty dead of the Civil War. The Forgotten Fallen by James Langton is published by Kilmainham Tales and can be purchased from them online at kilmainhamtales.ie. Again, James, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thanks very much, Miles, for having me on. That's just about all we've time for on this evening's programme. And in fact all we've time for on this season of The History Show. This will be our last episode for a while, but we'll be back in the autumn with another run of The History Show. In the meantime, you can, of course, always listen back to podcasts of our previous programmes, including the special 10-part Irish War of Independence series, which we made last year. You'll find those on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show, or just search for RTE History Show wherever you get your podcasts. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>